Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, and welcome to the August 2020 edition of Outward. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate. And I would like to commend everyone on the internet making memes about Kamala Harris, the Democratic vice presidential nominee, as Bette Porter. Um, And I've decided that this is going to be my version of imagining an audience in their underwear to get over stage fright. Just every time I see Joe Biden in the news or making a speech, I'm going to imagine him as Tina Kennard. And that's going to make this terrible, (laughs) wretched campaign cycle a lot more bearable for me. Oh my God. I love, I love that so much, especially because that Porter is the patron saint of our show. Totally. uh, Of of course. That's, that's wonderful. (laughs) I I like that. Get out of the, get out the vote strategy, Christina. (laughs) It's motivating (laughs) to me. I'm Ramon Alam. I'm one of Slate's Karen feeding columnists uh, and I'm a dad. So August usually promises, yay, the kids are heading back to school. And that has been replaced by a sense of creeping dread about Zoom lessons and Google Classroom. But it's just that's the kind of moment we're in. Yeah. Um, I'm Brian Lauder, editor of Outward, and uh, today is a good day because I just got a surprise package of drag from one of my fairy friends. I'm going to show it. Uh, the listeners won't be able to see it, but look at this emerald <laughs> oh, wow. green. What is that? Sparkling is that a... gown. It's like a full Oh my gown. God, that's gorgeous. Like full length floor gown, zip up. I cannot wait. As my uh, dad would say every time I bought a new item of clothing in high school, are you going to wear a tank top under that? Because it's see-through. <laughs> <laughs> it is see-through. No, and I probably won't. I probably won't. I'm sorry. Uh, but no, it's such a delight. So that, that's, that's beautiful. A, a nice thing to get on a August day. Yeah. It looks perfect for the weather, too. Nice and breathable. (laughs) Super. (laughs) This month on Outward, we are going to be joined by our fellow Slate columnist, Rich Joswiak. Rich is one of the columnists on How to Do It, Slate's sex advice column. And we are going to pepper him with all of our sex quarantine questions. Um, I'm very excited about that. It seems like a perfect hot topic for the hottest month of the year. And we're also going to spend some time on another hot topic, hot in a different way, a less <laughs> hot in a less scintillating way, which is whatever is happening in the current moment with Ellen DeGeneres, the, you know, arguably this country's most well-known gay personality is embroiled in a workplace scandal. And we'll talk about Ellen and her legacy and what that show Uh, Less about the controversy on that show, but more about Ellen's place in the American culture. But before we get to that, we will talk, as we always do at the beginning of these shows, about our pride and provocations. Brian, how are you feeling this month? Are you feeling proud or are you feeling provoked? I'm feeling proud. um, Generally feeling proud about how I've been seeing our 
queer spaces like bars and clubs trying to adapt to the moment of some reopening here in New York with really inventive ways of, of doing that safely. But I wanted to call out one space in particular uh, that I recently visited and had just the most fantastic revivifying time. Um, it's called Elsewhere, uh, and it's in sort of Ridgewood neighborhood of, of Queens. Um, and before the pandemic, it was a, an amazing uh, queer, mostly queer nightclub space. Um, it had been there many times for that kind of thing. And of course, now uh, they can't do that anymore, but they do have a roof deck and they have turned that into a really fantastic um, space to socially distant, everything safe, uh, but to but to be around queer people again. And we went, uh, my partners and I went the other uh, Friday night a week or so ago. Um, and you had to get like a reservation to be sure that, that you know there was a table. You had to stay at your table, uh, and um, unless you were masked and going up to collect your food items. They'd invented this whole like ordering system so that it was uh, touchless. Um, they did the temperature checks and the 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 um, uh, hand sanitizers and all of that um, in just the most efficient, excellent way. And then when you got there, you got to feel like you were almost at a gay club again. Um, and, and just being around all the queer people that were there made me so happy. So um, feeling feeling proud of our spaces who are trying to figure this out and, you know, hoping that more can do it and, and survive because we, we're going to need them for sure. Um, I, too, am proud this month. Um, I am proud of some of our fellow queers and allies in the WNBA. Um, so earlier this month, WNBA players from several teams started wearing t-shirts that said, vote Warnock as they arrived to play their games. So uh, Reverend Warnock is a Democrat who's running against Georgia Senator Kelly Leffler. Um, you might know her as the Republican who was famously investigated for insider trading um, when she allegedly attempted to profit off the coronavirus crisis. Um, she just happens to own 49% of the dream, which is Atlanta's WNBA team. Um, and the WNBA has dedicated its season to black women who've been killed by police. Uh, every game is dedicated to one such woman. Meanwhile, Senator Leffler has been criticizing the movement for black lives, um, you know, dog whistling, calling protesters a mob, saying that uh, Black Lives Matter protesters are encouraging destruction. So WNBA players have called for Leffler to be ousted as a team owner. Um, the WNBA leadership isn't doing that. So players led by noted queermo Sue Bird decided to campaign to get her out of the Senate, including the players on her team, on the team that she owns. Um, I think it's incredibly brave and it is putting all team owners on notice. Uh, I don't know how much you guys know about sports. I know very little. But what I do know is that there has been a sort of accepted dynamic for a long time, for forever, whereby team owners can really constrain what their players are able to do in terms of, you know, what they wear, what they say, who they talk to. Um, and in an industry where the owners are largely white, the players are largely black. Um, there's always been a racialized dynamic and watching 
black players. Laisha Clarendon is another one who's been taking the lead on WNBA activism this season, another noted queermo. Um, watching these people step up, have this incredible solidarity among the teams in a way that you really don't see among men's leagues. Um, you know, they're not engaging in this sort of theater of rivalry. They're all standing together against this um, really embarrassing team owner uh, is so heartening. And I can't imagine a better way for players to be using their time and their freedom of speech at this moment. It's really, really gutsy. And it's, it's amazing to watch because the attempt, like sort of like the political attempt there is to shame somebody who is really sort of shameless, right? Like power is so unshameable, but this is so shameful to look at. Like, it's, it's very powerful to think that, like, the people who are ultimately in this woman's employ are saying very openly that they are ashamed of her or that they or that we all ought to be. It's a, it's a really powerful statement. And I also I also find um, some vicarious pride in it. And I'm not like a sports person at all. And I also love that it's a proactive message. It's not just it's not just get this woman out of the WNBA, it's vote for her opponent. Yeah, Um, yeah. And, you know, it's, he is trailing her and the other conservative who's running right now, but, um, and, you know, who knows, there's still a lot of fundraising and get out the vote work to do, and um, besides that, I just love the example that it's setting for even other workers to be able to organize against bosses who are, you know, disrespecting their lives and livelihoods. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm glad that you two are both feeling proud this moment because I am feeling sort of provoked. Last month on this show, we spoke to the journalist David France about his documentary, Welcome to Chechnya, which talks about the oppression of LGBTQ citizens inside of Russia. It was such a sobering and educational experience for me, and I'm provoked watching what's happening in the country of Poland right now. Um, Andrzej Duda, the president of Poland, is a populist leader. He just won re-election, in part by demonizing that country's LGBTQ populace. Like, this is just sort of from that same nationalist playbook. A couple of days ago, the arrest of an activist named Margo Sutovic uh, led to a spontaneous protest during which 48 people were detained. It's a really frightening situation. And I think David Francis' film reminded me personally that we need to be aware of what's happening both here and abroad, that we need to be conscious of it and we need to allow ourselves to be provoked by the politics in other countries. And I think that's so true, what you said about it being this nationalist playbook. I mean, it's something that is pulled from again and again and could be pulled from here, you know? Like, it, yeah. it, 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 is, it is just very much present in that discourse. And I think, you know, our community, among others, uh, is, is, is usually one of the first stop to get, to get, uh, deployed in this way and abused in this way. So yeah, absolutely. It's frightening. It's also yet another reminder that, you know, the arc of progress is not inevitable and it's not really an arc at all. You know, it's like a squiggle line. Um, and that, you know, whenever I hear people like Joe Biden, for instance, a.k.a. Tina Kennard, talk about, <laughs> you know, well, the as the more you meet gay people, the more you like them or like, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. more and more people are just understanding like 
that that's not actually how people work. It's not how politics work. And it's not how movements work. And if anything is going to, if queer people and trans people are going to be protected, it, it needs a sustained and organized effort behind it. Um, it doesn't just happen. You know, it's not like there's just some wave of tolerance and justice sweeping the world that will eventually be inhaled by people in every country. Well, yeah, let's hope that there is, but there isn't at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Let's talk about an entirely different kind of provocation now. Um, very, very excited to talk to Rich Jeswiak, our colleague, um, about sex in this particular moment of quarantine. All right, so August means that we are six months, that is half of a year, into the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, at the beginning of all of this, it was easy to understand why casual sex and dating uh, and romantic lives generally needed to be locked down along with everything else. But as we've moved into the era of phased reopenings, quarantine bubbles, and public health departments advocating the use of glory holes, Guidance on how to conduct our intimate lives during COVID has become a little bit confusing. So to help us sort it out, we've called in Rich Jizwiak, one of Slate's How to Do It Sex Advice columnists and one of my favorite writers on queer issues generally. Thanks so much for joining us today, Rich. Thank you for having me and for saying that. Sure thing. Um, so as an advice columnist, you've got this, I think, broad view of what life is out there uh, like out there for, for people, uh, more so than most of us. So what's your just general sense about how people are holding up in terms of their, their sex and romantic lives right now? Um, it seems fraught. Uh, you know, there's not a ton of pure data, but anecdotally, I think that people at this point, um, if they are continuing to socially distance with the rigorousness that they were at the start of the pandemic are uh, basically at the end of their rope. But I, I think a lot of people aren't uh, being as strict as they were. I mean, that's that's what it seems like. I, I, I can't say that for sure, but just anecdotally, anecdotally, it seems like people are just being less strict. Are people, have you read messages from people who are taking incremental steps to reopening their sex lives? So it seems like people are sort of like, you know, keeping in pods or, or, or closed circles or, but, but see the, the problem that I think there is with this is if you're starting this out, you know, if you're, if you're like, okay, I'm gonna, I found somebody on an app that I'm going to hook up with. Um, and that's, that's going to be my quarantine person. Uh, I mean, how many app relationships, you know, endure for any period of time anyway, I, I feel like that sort of that you're setting yourself on a pattern of behavior where you're going to have a new quarantine buddy every few weeks. Uh, you know, if that, you know, uh, so 
I don't really trust that as a method per se, but at, at this point, I'm not really judging people who do do that because I understand that, you know, uh, along with the imperative of keeping ourselves physically safe, there is the imperative to keep ourselves mentally safe and happy. I wonder, Rich, if you've heard from your readers um, any kind of solutions to that that you found inventive or interesting, if you've heard from people saying like, well, this is what I've done and this is how I've got through this tough period. So generally, like, you know, the the people, it's like a problem on top of a problem, right? So like, uh, nobody is particularly inventive. They're asking us to invent for them. and it, Solve our that, problem, Rich. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and, and so in sort of that arena, a lot of people have written in about um, like virtual sex or screen sex. And uh, a lot of people who write in are like, I don't like this. And my partner is, you know, across the country. What should I do? And it's like, you know... I, there's a lot of stuff out there that you don't like. Uh, you know, no one person can like everything, and a lot of us like a relatively small number of things. So I just try to re- remind people that, like, uh, this is what you got. If you don't like it, you don't have to do it, but it's basically what you're working with. I personally don't like phone sex or virtual sex or screen sex or any of that, really. I don't, I'd rather watch porn. No offense to partners i just i mean it's the same thing and then in porn it's like two people and not just one person on a screen (laughs) i don't find that experience like gratifying whatsoever so i'm also a terrible person to ask or like how do i talk sexy i don't know like sex is a refuge from having to talk i talk all the time (laughs) i i I write i i write all the time i talk i talk in my head sex is like the one time i get to not talk it's that's what i like about it so i can't help you with it also feels like a very a particular uh, preference related thing. Like one person's sexy talk is another person's like incredible turn off. Um, but I, it, my most optimistic self wonders if this moment will introduce people to new things that they like, that they might not have had the um, impetus to try before, you know, like, Oh, I've never had to really embrace talking dirty or having uh, Zoom sex with somebody or, you know, Google chat sex or whatever. I'm not loyal to anyone I mean, platform. It, <laughs> it seems like masks, like masks are going to have to be fetishized. Oh my God, in a yes. Way that they right. Or for more people. It's already way. happening for me. They, it's already happening I, for me too. I mean, yeah. I've noticed, yeah. like, I think maybe we've even talked about this, like, people are like learning how to cruise again with their yeah. eyes, like yeah. in a way that I haven't seen in a really long time. And it's like, suddenly you don't, you don't have anything else. So all you can do is kind of do this. And like the eye contact has gotten spicy, like, <laughs> like, yeah. like, and, and it's great. I mean, I, I, I sort of, it's like, am I, you know, in the seventies again or something, but like, it's, uh, that's really exciting, I guess. Uh, it's for a sad reason, I guess, but like it's, <laughs> you know, uh, that's happening. This is not sexual at all. Um, but <laughs> The other day, I had a very heartening experience. I was meeting a friend, actually a coworker at Slate, um, to have breakfast in the park together. 
And the coworker got there early and she saw another queer person who she thought was me from afar. So she went over and started talking to them. Then I arrived and was like, oh, you found a friend. And she's like, no, I don't know this person. I just thought it was you. And then that person and I realized we live in the same neighborhood and exchanged numbers like, oh, maybe now we'll be friends. And no, I went and now home. now you're in a quarantine bubble. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. In fact, check back in two months. We might be mortal enemies. I don't know. But I was like, oh, let me... My wife, I was like, I met this new person who might be our new friend. Went to look them up on Facebook, and I was like, is that this, is that them? Is that them? I don't know. Like, I don't know what their face looks like because they were behind. <laughs> like, I probably wouldn't even recognize them if I saw them on the street somewhere. It's like, and yet we met, you know? It's like a totally different way of trying to assess a new person. It's um, so much is hidden from us. It is exciting. And Christina, to your point about trying new things, um, within the sort of limited data that is out there, um, I talked to one of my regular sources, uh, this guy, Justin Laymiller, who uh, wrote a book called Tell Me What You Want, which was about fantasies. And he works with the Kinsey Institute. And so they did a study at the beginning pretty much the beginning of lockdown. I think the study began like March 15th and lasted about a month or so. And it was over 1,500 people that completed it. And uh, while the study found that a lot of the, the majority of people's sex lives, the, the majority of people reported uh, that their sex lives had declined or um, yeah, just the quality of them had declined. Those who... The, the, the very small minority, about 13.6% of people who said it improved, what was linked to that was trying something new. You know, what, and, and, and that's often by necessity. And sometimes it could be something as simple as sexting. People said, I never sexted before, now I'm sexting. So it does seem like there is a correlative quality uh, with trying something new and that making people happier, which I think makes sense. Yeah, I mean, isn't that true? generally too that you know novelty is sort of the spice of life totally totally well so speaking of novelty rich i wonder what you're hearing from people who are in a period of lockdown with a partner and you know they're not i i'm mindful of my friends who are single and are home alone and are really feeling like that's a particular kind of um, not even even leaving sex aside, that's a sort of psychologically difficult thing to endure. Just you know, being cut off from human company for a period of time, it's not it's not natural. It's not healthy. Um, but I'm doing this with my husband. Like we're sort of in it together um, with our kids, sort of ruining the intimacy there. <laughs> but like, are you hearing from like what are you what are you hearing or what are you seeing in in the letters that you're reading about people? Are people feeling trapped? Or stuck, or are people feeling like it's an opportunity to kind of reinvent how the relationship functions? Well, both. We get a lot of stuff that's like, how do I have sex in my small apartment with my child here? Or, you know, we're, um, I'm staying at my partner's parents with him and it's a small place. What do we do? And I'm like, oh, you know, <laughs> a lot of the times. I don't know. What do you do? Um, but I, we did get uh, this week, in fact, or, or, or recently, let's say, recently we got a question that is, you know, as out there as they come. Uh, I can I can read it to you if you'd like. Please. It's not very long. It's it's pretty wild. 
So my wife and I like to do the cuckold scene, but during COVID, it's just the two of us. So we have been playing some Dom sub games. Right now, she is making me masturbate one to two times a day into a Ziploc bag and immediately freezing it. After a week, I have to eat it all. So my question is, assuming I'm STI-free, tested and true, is there anything I need to worry about with my cumsicle? If we don't hear from you by cumsicle day, we will just continue <laughs> adding to the prize as we want to be safe. Thanks. <laughs> like, coronavirus-wise? Like, he was afraid about eating his own cum because it might have coronavirus in it? I, I interpreted this as like he was afraid that somehow freezing it would change its constitution to such a point that it would become dangerous. I don't know. That, di- that didn't really scan for me. I mean, I took it. I took the question seriously, as I always do. Kind of, uh, yeah. And there is, you, you know, you can be allergic to your own cum. That's a thing. Yeah. So, yes. Um, and th- I read a really crazy horror story about like three days worth of diarrhea after a guy did this very thing on Reddit. Um, Unfortunately and fortunately there's Reddit because (laughs) this is something that is not well studied at all, but it is, I mean, like I was aware of this practice having like spent time on tube sites. Mm -hmm. I knew that this was a thing that people did uh, for a variety of reasons. And Reddit just happens to be a fountain of information on cumsicles. Mm. Yeah. So, um, so there's an example of novelty. That's novel. That's absolutely yes. novel. Oh, my God. Um, the New York City Health Department put out sort of a guide to safer sex during quarantine. Um, and they were encouraging people to experiment with barriers, which we took to mean use glory holes if and right. when that's possible. Um, have you heard from people trying to engage those kinds of safer sex measures? I have not. Um, I... Uh... I, I wonder about, I was a little bit surprised because very early on it was reported that COVID was found in semen. So, but, but that maybe, but that, but that transmission was unknown. Um, I don't know. I got a similar question this week about going down on a woman or like whether, you know, vaginal fluid or just the canal is, uh, you know, a means of transmission and it seems like, no, there's just a few studies. None have found, people have not found this yet, that, 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 there's, flu, that there's COVID in vaginal fluid. But I don't know, I don't understand in those situations, unless you have like an outdoor glory hole situation. Yeah. I mean, right. we, we, we still, still understand. Yeah. yeah, you breathe. And isn't that the main way of transmission right. so i don't understand how you could so that's what basically i said to the to the person who wrote in that was like how are you ever gonna how are you ever gonna be able to say definitively oh i got through this through oral sex and not just by being right. next like to you because you had covid and you're actually breathing. very close to exactly. where their vagina is exactly <laughs> exactly it's not six feet away yeah. unless you know we're talking about an amazon so uh yeah i don't really i i the the health department look i'm all for glory holes uh, great, bring back the glory hole. Uh, it seemed like somewhat convoluted advice to me. But again, do what you have to. If that's the if that's your risk reduction, great. Use a glory hole. Yeah, I do. I wonder, and this is pure speculation on my part, but I'm trying to imagine the person who feels comfortable enough or desperate enough to take a risk to have sex with somebody, but not but 
not so much that you would just have sex normally that, you know, you're going to be taking these yeah, that, like, sort of right. halfway measures that are who knows how well they'll even work. Exactly. Yeah. It's sort of mystifying to me as well. But, but. listeners, if you're one of those people, you know, we would love to hear <laughs> of that experience. You can email us at outwardpodcast at slate.com. Oh, please let us know. Yeah, we will read it. Um, so there's a lot of uh, talk about when normal will come back or if normal will come back. I want after after the pandemic. I wonder um, what your general thinking is on that, Rich. What do will sort of the way that we hooked up and dated before this return one day, or is this going to change things in some ways forever? What, what's your what's your prognostication? I don't know. Anecdotally, it seems like uh, for a lot of people, it is back to what it used to be. Maybe, maybe less. Maybe not as promiscuous, you know, as it as it could be or whatever. But promiscuous enough. So I think um, I think certain people will be necessarily more careful and more reluctant to go out there and do it. And I think some people will, you know plow through it as they have been the entire pandemic. I mean, I am aware of people who just never socially distanced, who just never did that. And, you know, they've never, you know, it's turned out to, to have been fine for them. So why would they? You know, I think a lot of people have that attitude. And I think a lot of people aren't sharing that attitude. Um, so I, I mean, I don't know. I guess we'll see. I, I think we're in the in New York, we're in the midst of a weird turn where it seems like we did what we had to. And in fact, it almost seems like we are living in a harm reduction world. You know, it's just, it's, it's a different city than it was in March. You know, it's, it's already different and we're not seeing increase in cases or deaths. So we're being given evidence that like, maybe we don't need to go whole hog, you know? Um, I don't know, but I, you know, I think that where there's a will, there's a way and there's going to be people having sex. When you were saying, you know, that some people have not socially distanced, have just continued as normal and it's been fine for them. I think when I hear that, I am reminded of the people you spoke of who are shaming people on social media for going to parties or having sex or whatever. And I think there is a sense among a lot of people that this isn't it's not like the usual kind of moralizing where like you're injecting yourself into somebody else's business because you can tell yourself like, hey, there are asymptomatic people spreading it all over the place. And maybe you didn't get sick or didn't know you were sick, but you spread it to somebody else who did get really sick and you didn't even know it. Um, So I think there's a sense of people wanting certainty where there is none and also feeling like this is very much a community safety issue and not like a to each their own kind of issue, which makes it so much different than any other conversation about sex that we could have or that the queer community has had. Yeah, I think that's so true. And and I say that not, you know, I, I mentioned people who do that not to hold that up as a model of behavior that I'm suggesting, but merely to say that they've done this, they haven't experienced any firsthand, uh, any firsthand illness, any firsthand, you know, um, liability as a result of it. And so they haven't learned, (laughs) you know, it, it, sometimes it takes, you know, actual consequences for people to change their behavior. And I think a lot of people have been shown inadvertently that they don't have to, 
what does that mean? You know, say they're carrying around immunity. What does that mean for next year for them? Who knows? Uh, I, I, I don't know. But I think I, I really do believe that people will find a way to have sex. Yeah. <laughs> I really do. That's a safe bet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I think, yeah, I think uh, in times as uncertain as these, that is that is a certainty we can hold on to. Um, I think that's a great place to leave it. Uh, Rich, thank you so much for joining us um, and for your amazing advice. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, listeners, you can go read Rich uh, every week on how to do it in Slate.com. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. All right, our next topic for the month, Ellen DeGeneres. You might have heard of her. Uh, last month, BuzzFeed published two articles from Christy Lee Yandley about the working conditions at Ellen, Ellen DeGeneres' talk show. Uh, according to several former employees, BuzzFeed reported, workers have been subjected to racist comments, sexual harassment at the hands of multiple producers, and general mistreatment by producers. Some former employees said that DeGeneres knew what was happening and didn't do anything to stop it. Others have said that Ellen herself was a mean boss. So June Thomas and I, June Thomas, a lesbian icon in her own right, uh, we had a little chat about what to make of these revelations about Ellen DeGeneres. You can find that transcript on Slate.com. And one of the major questions that we had was, Will this episode affect how Ellen is perceived by mainstream straight America, which is home to the vast majority of her fans? I actually don't know any queer people who are diehard fans of the Ellen talk show. Um, so Ellen was blacklisted in Hollywood for many years after she came out. And an essential part of her re-entry into the good graces of the industry was this persona she had that features heavily on the show, this inoffensive exceedingly generous, super kind, you know, America's best lesbian friend kind of character. 
So what I'm wondering is, is that image, and by extension, Ellen's ability to be embraced by straight America under threat now? Has this changed America's perception of her in any meaningful way? What do you guys think? I think it's a challenge to untangle whether Ellen herself is being held to a higher standard because she's uh, a woman, maybe, or because she is queer, and that there's an expectation that like she as the big boss, like the buck stopped with her, that we would have with her that we might not have with, uh, you know, say, Jimmy Kimmel or David Letterman or Jimmy Fallon, right? So I think that's one thing. And I think the other thing is that in a, in a way, you can look at Ellen, uh, r- the rumors of Ellen being an imperious boss as a kind of victory that, like, yes, she should be an imperious boss because men have been able to handle power and uh, celebrity that way for a long period of time. And in a, in a perverse way, you can say, isn't that kind of great that Ellen has access to the privilege that we are more comfortable affording to celebrated men. I think of that argument in the same way that I think of arguments about Amy Klobuchar when there were reports of her, you know, berating employees, throwing things at them. And there was a little bit of a strain of argument out there that was like, well, good for her. She didn't, you know, women don't get places in politics without having sharp elbows and without, you know, uh, throwing throwing a few staplers. Yeah. (laughs) And, I think that's the completely wrong way to look at it. I think we should the, want no one to be doing those exactly yeah. the <laughs> the motivation of you know any work that we have done for equality should be to raise the bar for everybody else uh, instead of lower the bar for somebody like Ellen. That said, I cannot picture anybody else being held to account for the behavior of all of their employees. Uh, I, I can't picture, you know, let's say, um, I'm, I'm trying to think of all of these men and I'm just keep coming up with like Charlie Rose. No, Matt Lauer. No, like well, what, let's what men Fallon, shows? Right. Jimmy Fallon, like sweet, sweet Jimmy Fallon. Right. Like there's a way in which even I am like, well, on the Ellen Jenner show, like Ellen must be the mom. Right. Like everybody must be accountable to her because right. she's. And is that by virtue of the fact that she's a woman? Whereas if this were happening, and to be clear, it's not happening as far as I know, but if this were happening with Jimmy Fallon's show, would he be able to say, like, well, I'm just the boss. Like, I don't know what's happening. I don't understand how these other interpersonal relationships are playing out under my, under the umbrella of my personality and my persona. Like, you know, is it different? Is our expectation different because she is a woman? I don't know if it is necessarily, but I, I, I think that in part it might be. I think it might be that. I also, though, think that she she cultivated this persona of the the you know generous, kind, inoffensive sort of uh, best friend very consciously, like from from the get with her career. And I feel like what's happening now is that 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 of like. If you believed that was like 100% true, maybe you feel betrayed now. But if you were like savvy and knew it was kind of a performance, then you feel like I feel a kind of um, like not not that it's like justified, but just like 
well, that was always fake. And of course, like, of course, it's going to come back to bite you. Right. But then on the other hand, like, I feel sad that she felt that she had to construct that persona in the first place to be accepted as a queer person. Right. So it's like it's like this thicket. I can't I'm not even sure if I'm explaining it clearly, but like it, there's like I, I see why she had to to create that brand, even as I kind of hate the brand and feel like the brand itself is like offensive. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that it's just so clear to me that Ellen or really any of the performers we're talking about are conducting a performance. And there's a particular nuance to the nature of Ellen's performance by the fact that she is a butch lesbian, right, who came out in a very public way and was um, really kind of destroyed for it for a long period of time. And so we assume that her performance of geniality is somehow a correction for what she went through in that period of time. But we don't really know that. She could simply be playing nice because it earns her tens of millions of dollars a year. Mm -hmm. And that is a simple and straightforward calculation. And I think it's very hard to understand how insulating and warping it can be to possess that kind of money and that kind of celebrity where you just don't, your sense of who you are and what your responsibility is to other people becomes very confused and very odd. And you are, you are indulged, your own idiosyncrasy is indulged and you are protected. And so in a way you can't blame somebody who is as cosseted as Ellen is for an abdication of leadership because she has been to, to get that kind of money to, to occupy that kind of celebrity is to kind of be babied. Well, it's such a strange position because she is, I mean, coming out the way that she did in 97, like she, there, she you cannot, the, the trailblazer is the right word. At the same time, if you don't build on that into sort of a politics, then wh- where where does that leave like the community looking at you, right? Like, I feel like that's where I'm at a loss with her generally is like, I recognize that it was, you know, career suicide to do that or seem to be, um, to do what she did. And, but then, so, so like props for that, I guess, but then like, what did you do after? And like you, Christina, in your chat with June, you had this great line about like, is, I think you were quoting or sort of paraphrasing Barack Obama, who said that she pushed the country in the direction of justice. And you asked like, is she still doing that? Or when, how long has it been since she was doing that? And like, I don't, I don't know. I don't think any, like at all, as far as I know, like she's not someone who comes to mind when I think about queer people who are, who are pushing the boundaries of what, you know, of, of justice for all of us. Um, Except for, I mean, I, I would point out though, the simple act of representation on the television screens of millions of Americans daily. But do you, so that's interesting. Like, but do you think, is the representation that she offers like <laughs> this sounds weird, but like enough of a representation? <laughs> like, is it is, is it like is she, I mean, this gets into like a kind of lesbian enough thing, you know, like kind of test, which I which I am you know uh, suspicious of. But like at the same time, you know, I and I I should say like I don't watch the show, but like my sense from clips and things that I see is not that it's like a super queer 
show. So like, yeah, I mean, you, I think it's important to remember that that we're talking about a network morning show, right? Like it is a, uh, to call it G rated is an understatement, right? Like the endeavor (laughs) of the program is to, you know, entertain uh, an audience. I would guess that it's largely women who make their living in the home, right? Who make their lives in the home. And I would you know, and again, I don't know the demographics of Ellen's viewership. I don't know, I don't know who is tuning in. But my guess is that it is, for some segment of Ellen's audience, she is the gay person who they know. Yes. And that they have a feeling about her. They have an attachment to her. They have an understanding of her and her home life with the uh, actress Portia de Rossi. And like that, 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 that's, there, there's some power in that. That that may actually have affected how a whole population thinks about gay and lesbian people more generally. I don't know. I don't know if that's giving her too much credit or if that's misunderstanding who her audience actually is. But that's my guess. And I think that you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to pretend that there's not power in that. I, my question about that is you know, less about the actual, whether her show is sort of queer enough or political enough, because it's never going to be queer enough or political enough for me. My question is more, does that positive representational effect still have the same meaning, you know, 15 years since the show's beginning? I think it was probably a lot more powerful seven years ago than it is now when there are all manner of queer people in all manner of mainstream entertainment, you know? So while she may be the only queer person that some people know still, they've known her for 15 years. And I wonder if those people have progressed at all in their understanding of what it means to be like an LGBTQ ally uh, in that span of time, or whether they can just sort of think, you know, I'm not bigoted because I watch Ellen in the same way that, Oprah being a a famous and rich black woman on TV didn't solve people's racism. You know, I think there's a limit to how far that kind of representation can lift people up. Meanwhile, now Oprah's out here putting Breonna Taylor's picture on the cover of her magazine. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. Beyonce is out here making a visual album full of, you know, artists from the African diaspora what is Ellen doing for what 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 sort of similar way is Ellen using her position as an arbiter of mainstream culture to advance the communities that she's a part of? I I um you know I expect so little from her that I wasn't surprised to hear that her workplace was a total clusterfuck and that she was tolerating, you know, racism and sexual harassment because like you said Ruman, I mean, she is far more, I'm just going to, again, quote myself from my conversation with June because I vomited so much onto the page for that, but she seems far more invested in the rich community than she is in the LGBTQ community. Yeah. Mm. Well, I think money is a very, very corrupting and strange influence, and I think it's impossible, especially the kind of money that we're talking about. It warps your sense of who you are, and Ellen sort of ran afoul of leftist politics already um, by, you know, Instagramming herself at the Super Bowl was it the Super Bowl? Actually, maybe it wasn't the Super Bowl, know. but some 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 sporting event with you know, like, yeah, <laughs> you know game. with George W. Bush, and um, so leading people to question her sort of liberal bona fides because she was palling around with a, a Republican president, and you know, I think that 
there was also there were also critics who looked at that and said, yes, of course, money knows about money. Like, you have to think about Ellen as a multimillionaire and not as like a lesbian. It's intersectionality. Yeah. yeah, I mean the interse- <laughs> the intersection of whiteness Truly. and and vast vast wealth. Like that's yeah. where Ellen sits, and she may she may perform a service to the cultural imagination by showing up on daytime television in sharply tailored suits. And she may have done something, but Christina, as you say, perhaps those hearts and minds have been won already. Like we're sort of talking about a kind of um, will and grace style representation of queerness, but like the culture has actually moved well past that at this point. I just keep thinking back to the conversation that she had with Kevin Hart when he was tapped to host the Oscars. And then, you know, people resurfaced all of these terrible homophobic jokes that he had told in the past. Um, And Ellen devoted a whole hour of her show to shaming the people who were hurt by those jokes, calling them haters, uh, agreeing with him when he called them trolls, basically positioning Kevin Hart as the victim of all of these queer and trans people who were saying, you know, can you apologize for these things? Um, And I think to me that really showed where her loyalties lay. And, you know, when we talk about the value of having somebody like her, an androgynous, I wouldn't say butch necessarily, um, public figure, you know, coming into your home every morning, like, it matters what you what you do with that identity. And what she did was use her identity as a way to absolve somebody of their homophobia. And I think that's one of the worst ways that you could possibly use that identity because then you're giving permission to all the straight people watching to say, oh, okay, so like my homophobia wasn't really that bad or maybe I apologized for it once and now I can stop thinking about it. And everybody who's trying to hold me to task is actually just trying to bring me down and ruin my brand partnership with Chase. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I'm no particular, I have no particular feelings about Ellen either way, but I do, I am mindful of what she accomplished on her sitcom also called Ellen um, in a very, very different moment in this culture. And I think it is worthy and important to continue for, for audiences to continue to push their entertainers and their cultural figures toward a higher standard. And I think that's really worthy. And I think it's, we don't need Ellen in quite the same way now because we do have people like um, Frank Ocean or, um, we have, you know, Janet Mock. Like, we have these pop cultural figures who rep- who really represent and embody um, difference and, you know, the sort of spectrum of human existence very powerfully. And that's wonderful. And they are... But, you know, I also am mindful of the fact that, in a way, they are the descendant. They have taken the torch from Ellen's fingers because Ellen, as a sort of dumb sitcom entertainer, did roll the dice and make a very particular personal political statement in a time when that was not palatable. And she really did suffer for that. I'm not worried about Ellen. She's got hundreds of millions of dollars. <laughs> she will be, she could probably buy a country and sort of start her own religion if she wanted to. But I am mindful of what that was in a different cultural moment. Yeah. And I do think that the people who are most likely to be upset by these allegations demanding better from her are not necessarily the same people who have been 
you know, enamored by the Ellen personality and the sort of like heartwarming GoFundMe moments on her show. And good for them. I mean, that anger about her and what she represents is righteous. And I think she, it is, it is wonderful to see people holding power to account, you know, like that is important. And we exist in a cultural moment. Like, so people who panic refer to this as cancel culture, but that's not the moment we, we, we exist in a moment of responsibility. Right. And like, power should have to accept responsibility for the ways in which it is discharged. And that's a wonderful thing. And that is a welcome change in our expectations for people like Ellen, like our politicians, like anybody who possesses power. And I think we can do that holding to account and keep in our minds at the same time that uh, all of the, you know, the import of what she did, you know, we, we shouldn't erase that. Um, but at the same time, uh, we should be able to critique not, you know, both, both what she's done with her sort of queer power and then also what's going on with these specific allegations now. All right. That feels like a good place to end it. Um, listeners, I would love to hear from you if you're a fan of Ellen or if you have thoughts about what she's done with her queer power, as Brian so eloquently put it. Uh, you can email us anytime, day or night at outwardpodcast at slate.com. All right, I guess it's time for our gay agenda. Brian, what are you bringing to us? So um, I am bringing to you this wonderful web series that I hope our listeners are already familiar with, but if not, I'm going to tell them about it uh, because that's what we do on this segment. Um, <laughs> it's called, uh, it's very hard to like pronounce, but I'm doing my best. Uh, is the title. <laughs> With, uh, My it's, gay it's, agenda it's, item is just that recording. Yeah. That noise. Uh, <laughs> um, it is with a host, a, a web series hosted by Trixie Mattel and Katya, who are both uh, RuPaul's Drag Race alums. Um, and it has been on for a number of years now. The, a new season just started up, which is why I'm mentioning it now. But um, it's been on for a number of years. And it is, it is like my favorite, like, I am brain dead, need to watch something hilarious uh, thing that exists in the world. They, they sort of, I'm, I, describing it as tough because it's, it's so uh, surrealist and kind of madcap, but they simply sit in front of a green screen and have uh, a topic for the series like dating or um, pet peeves or broccoli and then just sort of riff off of each other in this they just have this incredible chemistry and they rip off, riff off of each other joking and analyzing like aspects of each of those topics um, for like you know eight to ten minutes something like that um, and it is just so fucking funny they are so smart in their in their own ways um, and, and it's, it's maybe the best thing that's come out of the whole RuPaul's Drag Race, uh, universe, uh, extended, ex- wow. extended universe. That's high praise coming from you. And, and we yeah. should note, we should note that there's like a vigorous cosign from our producer who is nodding <laughs> yes. his head and, and grinning yeah. happily. So, uh, I, but I yeah. would like to hear you say the name of the show one more time, Brian. Okay. It's, uh, uh, it's spelled U N N. 
N-H-H-H-H, I think. Um, but you'll find it if you Google something like that. Uh, but it is on World of Wonder. It's come from World of Wonder, which is the RuPaul production company, and uh, on YouTube. So um, if you're looking for some August, you know, uh, binge viewing, I would say start at the beginning and just get into the green screen graphics and the hilarity because they're excellent. All right. I'd like to recommend a New York Magazine profile by Molly Fisher. It's a profile of one-time Outward guest, Sarah Shulman. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's what she's best known for, her <laughs> appearance on Outward. Now, she's a, a longtime AIDS activist and author and teacher. Um, the profile was published in the August 3rd issue of New York Magazine, and it does a beautiful job of unpacking the Shulman coinage, Conflict is Not Abuse, which is uh, the title of her 2016 book. And it became sort of unexpectedly and exceedingly popular um, as a way of understanding all manner of social and political and politicized conflict that all of us seem to be unendingly embroiled in, um, especially in the wake of the 2016 election, but also as long as people have been having conflict with one another. Um, So part of the impulse to claim victimhood, according to Shulman, is that in our culture, uh, often you need to be a victim to get care and support. Um, And it's also hard within the current cultural discourse to talk about victims who are also perpetrators of abuse. The book does a a much better job of explaining those concepts than I can. But um, what Fisher does is talk about how these trains of thought and lines of inquiry are the culmination of much of Shulman's life and work uh, as a Jewish lesbian in New York. And, you know, she's done so much and produced so much for the queer community and with the queer community. Um, And it strikes to me a note of optimism, even though I don't know that Sarah Shulman would identify herself as a particularly optimistic person. Um, But just, just to read about the possibility of reconciliation and resolution of community conflicts, um, is heartening in times like these, quote unquote. Uh, So I really hope that the profile is introducing some younger queer and trans people to Shulman's work. I enjoy it so much in part because I disagree with her sometimes. And she's one of the few people who I can really thoroughly disagree with in, in a way that feels energizing and generative. I mean, she's just smart as hell and so compelling as a writer and thinker. The profile is called Sarah Shulman's Good Conflict by Molly Fisher. And... Or just read a bunch of Sarah Shulman's work. Um, my gay agenda is considerably more lowbrow than I would say both of yours, actually. <laughs> Perfect. Um, but, you know, thinking about Ellen DeGeneres uh, as we were in preparation for this conversation, I was thinking about um, Ellen's show, which was called Ellen. Um, and I have mentioned before that I have spent this summer retreating into the sitcom. Um, I watched all of Designing Women earlier this year, which was really a gay, let's talk about gay agenda. Like that is a show (laughs) that is really forwarding the gay agenda, really advancing the gay agenda. Um, But earlier this year, I also spoke to the comedian Cole Escola for um, the Working Podcast. And we talked a lot about the influence of the sitcom as a form on the kind of comedy he now performs and writes. And so I have continued to be, I've continued to watch sitcoms 
that I already know um, from a point of view of comfort, just sort of leaving it on while I'm trying to do my work uh, or while I'm trying to make my kids dinner for the 78th day in the row. And um, I have been re-watching shows thinking about gay representation. And it's kind of a fascinating exercise in like rereading our recent past. And right now I am watching 30 Rock and it is a very interesting revisitation sort of in the way that um, a fashion trend from just a couple years ago can feel extremely alien and distant. 30 Rock as a document of a different time in the culture feels very alien and distant. And the way the show talks about queerness in particular is extremely <coughs> almost unrecognizable to me. And it's huh. it's hard for me to imagine that a contemporary sitcom writer's room would conceive of joking about queerness in the way that 30 Rock did only a handful of years ago. And so I highly recommend the sitcom revisitation project for your waning months of summer. I don't have much left in me intellectually before the cool weather of fall. And so I'm going to finish watching 30 Rock. And then I think I'm actually going to watch Ellen after this and really try and understand what that show was doing before Ellen came out as a part of the storyline. And then after Ellen came out as part of the storyline, it's a part of my history that like, it's a part of our cultural history that uh, again, in the way that fashions from a couple years ago can feel really irrelevant. That's sort of the space it seems to occupy for me, but I would like to brush up on that. So I have plenty of time cooking to watch these sitcoms on my iPad and sort of zone out. So that's my plan. That's my gay agenda for the rest of the summer. Thank you for giving me permission to rewatch Frasier. Yeah. Oh. I, always, I always need that. Listen, so and again, talk about a text that advances the yeah. gay agenda. I mean, Frasier yeah. really doesn't get enough credit for doing that work. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is about it for this month. And in fact, this summer. Uh, please send us your feedback and topic ideas at outwardpodcast at slate.com or via Facebook and Twitter at Slate Outward. Our wonderful producer is Daniel Schrader. June Thomas is the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts and an unqualifiedly deserving American lesbian icon. If you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app, tell your friends about it, rate and review the show so that others can find it. Outward will be back in your feeds September 16th. Guys, I'll see you this fall. See you then, Ramon. Bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.